You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. In case you didn't know, Mexico team is off and away. So yesterday morning, they were out of here at 5.30. So got up bright and early to go and pray for them as they went out. And then I went home and went back to bed. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they're, they're headed down. Um, they should be down there by this point, recovering from a long, long drive. Um, but they'll be, they'll be getting going real quick. So keep them in your prayers for this week, that everything goes smoothly, that God's words goes out, that they have an impact down there, and they're a blessing to that church, and that they themselves are blessed in the going. And so when they come back, we'll, we're looking forward to um, good reports of their, their time down in Mexico. We are continuing our journey through Genesis. Uh, last week, we had the introductory chapter to the accounts of Jacob's sons. And we were pretty much rehashing almost all of the themes that we've seen through Genesis, all of the, the negative things of humanity. And one of the biggest overarching ideas there is, are we loving God and are we loving others? This is, this is gonna encapsulate everything. And we're gonna see from time and time again the mistakes of people and the issues that happen when people aren't doing that thing loving God and loving others. The next two chapters we're going to go through, chapter 38 and 39, they're essentially a pair. They're a juxtaposition. It's a big $2 word. Juxtaposition means a comparison between two drastically different things. A mountain and a molehill is a juxtaposition. Things that are the same idea, but massively different. We're going to be looking at the difference between Judah's response to being in the world and Joseph's response to being in the world. One of them is a, hey, do this, and the other one is a, don't do that chapter. We're gonna start with the, don't do that chapter. Um, I hope you're ready for weird, the chapter's weird. Um, (laughs) Even contextually, there's a lot of things that we can say in scripture that are weird. When we look at it in its context, it's still weird. Uh, This is really not in the norm at all. It's very unique to this time, and it really speaks to an essential truth I want to hammer down on this week. I was considering um, with the word that Matt brought and the prayer um, during the service and the worship time and talking about who God is and what we're doing and how we've spent all this time going through the Old Testament, which is really a focus on the law. It's getting an understanding of everything that Jesus and the apostles were referring back to so that when we read those accounts, we read what our mission is and what it's based on. It's all based on the law and the principles that are taught therein, not a strict adherence to the law because Jesus has fulfilled the law. We are under a new mission, a new covenant in Christ's blood now, but we're meant to learn from the law. And that's what we're doing. We're learning lessons to apply to our life. Because within the law, it actually clearly said to the Israelites, hey, if you keep your end of this agreement, everything will be good all the time. And if you have lived on this earth for any period of time, you will realize everything is not good all the time. That's not the reality we live in now. And that's actually not what Jesus said was going to happen. No, he said that is going to be done. I'm going to fulfill that. 
And that if you follow after me now, if you choose me as Lord and Savior of your life, you will be redeemed. You will be forgiven. But I have a new mission for you. You are no longer here to stay. You're actually to go. And going will be hard. Going will cause trials and tribulations. There will be difficulties and you will be tested in your faith. It's a very different promise than if you do all this, it'll be all good. So as we go and walk through our lives, it's not as simple as black and white anymore. We're going to encounter a lot of situations that have a whole lot of gray, that don't fit a box. They don't fit in the norm. They don't fit in what we can just go to, well, let's flip to page 182 and see what they did then. This chapter is just that. What happens when you encounter gray, deep gray, the unfortunate situations in life when I don't have any reference to fall upon for this? What do I do? How do I go to God's word, take a truth and apply it to my situation? Because it would be so much easier if it was black and white. I love black and white. I totally fall on the hard justice side of things when it's just it's right or it's wrong, condemnation and blessing. And there are a lot of people in you here like, yes. And there are others that fall along the grace side of things. And all the grace in my life is the blessing that God upon me. It's not of my own within me. It's what God has worked through me. And we need to have both of these things in our lives. But when we look at this situation, we have to realize there are going to be some things in Scripture that we really like to be black and white. I just want it to be this, and I want to focus on this. And we tend to do that, and it's not a knock on anybody. It's just a reality of who we are as people. We have this particular thing that's really important to us, and it's black and white for the world because it's black and white for me, and I've actually never dealt with a situation where I really, really had to deal with this. When there's a lot of reality here, when someone has been in the most difficult situation in life that you never have, that that doesn't look so black and white anymore. How do they walk through this. And there's any myriad of things that we can talk about within that. Some really easy examples, alcohol. For some people, it's very black and white of, no, you don't drink alcohol, it's evil. Scripture never says that, though. There are people who abuse alcohol. There are people that have not followed what Scripture's mandate, saying, don't get drunk with wine. And it has caused harm and hurt in people's lives. But that doesn't make it a black and white issue. What's black and white is don't get drunk with wine, not don't drink wine. And we can't apply that to everyone else in our life because of a particular struggle we had or a particular struggle of a family member has had. We ourselves make sure that we don't do anything that causes someone else to stumble, though. That's the admonition to us. Whenever we have something that's really super important to us, whether it be, whether it be alcohol or whether it be dress or whether it be language or whether it be um, how we interact with others. This might be a really big, important thing to us that we think is black and white. But Paul said, hey, everything is lawful, but not everything is helpful. Not everything builds up. His example was eating meat offered to idols. He's like, idols are they're nothing. That means nothing to me. They mean nothing to God. I don't worship them. And if someone's selling that meat in the market, it's meat. I'm going to eat it. But if your brother has a difficulty eating that because it strikes his conscience, don't eat it around him. That's our responsibility. 
What isn't our responsibility is to go around telling everybody, if you eat that meat, you're a sinner. That's actually our struggle, not theirs. We have to work to not try to force what we see as black and white on others, particularly when Scripture isn't clear on it itself. We're about to look at a very gray situation. Um, And I'm going to give a couple examples of things that we can't just pick one part of the law that we like and say, you can never do this. You must follow every part of the law. Paul speaks of that as well. He says, if you follow one part, you follow all of it. I'm going to read a verse today that I'm sure most of you have never ran the banner cry of like, we mean to be doing this again. It's in the law. It's going to be fun to see how everyone reacts to it. (laughs) Judah, a wayward son, and he really does go wayward. Genesis 38, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. The name of the Canaanite is Shua, not the daughter. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Jezib when she bore him. The daughter of Shua, a Canaanite. Issue number one, Judah has wandered away from the family. He's wandered away from the community, the godly community around him, or what's meant to be the godly community, and he's gone out into the world, and he's starting to embrace the world. He has now married a woman of the land, which up to this point, they've said, hey, don't do that. One of the examples we've had is out of Genesis 26, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. These women of the land made life bitter. That's not really a reason to ban marrying people because you don't like the way they do things. The real issue actually comes from Deuteronomy 7, which is later on referring to why you shouldn't marry people of this area. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. This is the, this is the main issue. This is the big thing. If you, fall, if you go and start marrying these other people that don't follow God, they're going to continue to follow the gods they served and they're going to pull you away. And I thought about that for a minute. Why is that the expectation that that's going to happen? If you marry those people, they're going to pull you away not the other way around. Why is that the expectation? Why is it so easily that we fall away from God and towards other things? James 1 actually gives us a bit of an answer to this. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
There's something within us that wants something different. There are going to be things that God instructs that he guides us in that are difficult for us, that we don't like, that we don't want to actually follow because our flesh wants something else. I want to fulfill this desire even though I know that God says it wrong. I still want it. But over there, they say that's okay. Maybe they're right because it already lines up with what I want. And we are enticed by our own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's the emphasis of this. Don't be deceived by your own desires pulling you away from what you know is right because it just sounds like what you already want. The apostles talked about this, of what's to come. What's to come in the times we're living in right now when teachers will rise up that tell them everything their itching ears want to hear. There is no shortage of people out there, and particularly in the days of information, that are going to say what you want to hear. But does that line up with the truth of God? Does that line up with Scripture? Just because you want to hear it doesn't make it any more right. That's the difficult check we have to have in our own hearts. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know what Er did. Never ever comments on it. We can only assume that he's doing something worthy of basically probably getting a disease and dying early on before he normally would have because of his behavior before the Lord. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your, do- your brother. We're going to get to the weird now. <laughs> we- this part is just weird contextually for us. It would not have been weird then. The weird then is coming in a little bit. First question, is Tamar also a Canaanite? Because it didn't say. Speculation abounds on this, whether Tamar herself is from one of the families related that are now down in the region, kind of interdispersed, or is she a Canaanite? Some of the arguments say, well, they said that that Judah's wife was a Canaanite, and since they didn't say Tamar was a Canaanite, we can assume that she's not. But it's a big, big old assumption, and assumptions aren't good. We can't, we can't tell. There's nothing to say whether or not she is. And it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because of what God does with anybody. There's so many people throughout Scripture that actually aren't from this line. They aren't from this people group, but they come into this people group. They choose God. They choose His goodness. They choose to follow after Him, and they change history through that and they're honored for it. Tamar is going to be honored through this story. The next biggest example we went through, we talked about over a year ago, two years ago, it's been a while, was Ruth. The book of Ruth. Ruth is not an Israelite. She becomes an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She comes from outside the family of God but she chooses 
God. She chooses his people. She chooses to be faithful. She chooses to follow after him, and she is honored for it, and her actions change history. It doesn't matter whether or not she's a Canaanite in this, and it matters that God is going to use her, and he's going to use her in a very important way. So what's the duty of a brother-in-law? Because that's new to me. This is talking the leveret marriage. This is the passage of Scripture that I don't hear. I've never heard once somebody come up to me, why aren't we doing this anymore? <laughs> if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall, be married, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is in the law. Just like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt take your brother's widow into your home and give her a son. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody does this anymore. Nobody cries for this anymore. But we'll cry out for other things. We have to consider what we do and that some things that, hmm, they make us a little uncomfortable. Anybody going to have this situation brought up to them saying, hey, it's in the law? You know your responsibility, right? Anybody going to walk in that? If you bite off one piece of the law, you bite off the whole law. Be careful how you walk. Be careful with what you do in treating everything as black and white because we're going to pull out this verse and go, <clears throat> But the situation here is the issue of having no son, no lineage. It's as if you never existed because your name will not live on. It's an extremely big deal in their culture. Huge. So much so that it becomes the responsibility of the rest of the family to make sure that that name continues, that you will bring her into your home, you will give her, her, give her a son, and that son will take on the name of your brother, not your name. It's a completely sacrificial thing, that that child will not be yours. That will be your brother's child now, and he will get your brother's inheritance. And you will take care of your sister-in-law as if she was an additional wife in your household now. It's a, it's a big ask. It's no little thing. But it was expected. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. She has no husband. She has not been released from Judah's authority. She has very few options here. This is a really difficult spot for her to be in, but she is actually following the marriage contract that they have. She is now part of Judah's family, but she's living in her father's home. And yet Judah is the authority in her life. 
This is the patriarchy. This is some difficult things that we struggle with. We don't really see happening anymore. But she doesn't have a lot of options. She doesn't have a lot of choices. She can either follow it, or if she doesn't, she goes and strikes out on her own. She can either run very, very far away, or if she goes and tries to find a husband of her own and do her own thing, she'll be stoned to death. Not a lot of options here. She fulfills her end of the contract. She goes, she lives in her father's house. She does not seek after another marriage. She's waiting for Shalah to grow up. Imagine being in that situation for a minute. You've married someone who's probably close to your own age. We're looking at a 20-year gap here, thereabouts. So she was probably quite young because they got married quite young. And Air was probably somewhere between 16 and 18 when they got married, which means Onan would have been younger. So maybe they grew up a little bit, and then he dies, and then she has to marry Onan, who's now several years younger than her, and then there's a little bit goes along, and then he dies, and then you have Shela, who's young enough to not be considered a man, and you're being told, we're going to wait for him to grow up, and then he's going to be your husband. How weird would that be? And yet, she's walking it out. She's doing what she agreed to with the marriage contract of being within this family. What's her side of this? What is she going to receive from this? Because she's putting, going through a lot within this. The promise to her being married to the firstborn means that she gets to be the mother of the patriarch. She gets to be the wife to who's going to be the firstborn in that family. And she gets to be mother of the one who is going to be the heir of that family. It's actually a really prestigious thing within this time period. Because when Judah dies, that means his firstborn son is now in charge. And she is supposed to be married to that person. She is going to actually have a lot of authority within that family. It's a lot of authority has been promised to her. And her son is going to be the main inheritor of that family. It's a big promise. It's a big deal for them. And this is what is owed to her. And she's going through a lot. This is her side of that bargain. Now, will Judah upend his, uphold his side of the deal? And that's actually the issue we're about to face, where it's about to get weird. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shears, he and his friends, Hira the Adulamite. So when the sheep shearing happens, it's usually a big festival, it's a big celebration. There's a lot of joy, there's a lot of frivolity, It'd be almost like the idea of having when the carnival comes into town. It's a big party when they go and they shear the sheep. So it's a lot of, hey, this is a happy time, let's celebrate, let's do some fun things. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. She was owed a husband. She was owed being the matriarch of this family, and it was being withheld from her. She was being wronged and she has very limited options to make this right. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. 
She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. The signet and the cord and the staff are extremely valuable items. The signet and the cord would be the um, equivalent of our signature now. They would have marked that this actually came from you. The whole idea of a signet ring that you would have sealed with wax to be this authentically came from me in this household. It marks authority over the home and the household. If you have the signet ring, you're walking with the authority of the house, which you say is the will of this whole family. So she's telling him, you're going to give me your marks of authority, as was already promised to her. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. What else was promised to her? A son. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. There's a little interesting detail that I picked up for the very first time, just actually based on what we talked about in the last few weeks. Judah's been deceived, yes, in a very unconventional way. And how was he deceived? Well, let's back up in a minute. How did Jacob deceive his father? Deceived him with a garment and a goat. How was Jacob deceived by Judah, his son? with a garment and a goat. How is Tamar deceiving Judah? She put on a special garment, and there's an interaction with a goat. It's an interesting little thematic element as I considered this week, and a lot of it's focusing around the goat. Do you know where the term scapegoat comes from? Scapegoat comes from the Day of Atonement and when the sins of the people would be placed on a goat and the goat would have been sent off to the wilderness to carry the sins of the people away from them. It's the scapegoat. It's a thematic element within Scripture of people utilizing a goat to cover up their sin. It's interesting, these little bits that we find consistent through Scripture. Now, elephant in the room, the issue of prostitution here. Are Judah's actions condoned within this? Is this somehow okay for him to have done? And the glaring response to us should be, no. In no way was this okay for Judah to do. At Leviticus 19.29, it says, Do not prevent your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. This action is depravity. But Judah is becoming very much like the people of the land that somehow say, well, if she's a cult prostitute, meaning she works for a particular shrine or idol or temple, and there are religious rights tied to it, then, then it's okay. 
but if you sleep around before you're married, we'll put you to death. This is the world, the dichotomy they live in. One is somehow okay, and the other is not. I want you to let you know, you still live in that same world. Exactly the same world. In most states, prostitution is illegal. But do you know what's not illegal? Making pornography. It's illegal to pay someone as a prostitute, but it's not illegal to pay two other people and film them. This is the bizarre dichotomy our world lives in and accepts somehow. And this is what we're looking in there, becoming like the world. Just because it's in the world doesn't mean we become like the world. The world isn't our standard of what is okay. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah. And he did not know her again. First thing, Judah's response to the perceived immorality is pretty drastic. Initially, it is lining up with Scripture, but taking it a step further. Scripturally, it would say out of Deuteronomy 22, Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Stoning was somehow lesser than burning somebody at the stake burning of the stake was only reserved for some of the most heinous things that people would do. Stoning was much more common. But what's meant to be shown here is the glaring hypocrisy of Judah. And what he was willing to do, just fine, no worries, no qualms, but the moment my daughter-in-law does something else, we'll burn her at the stake. It's glaring. When we look at John 8, beginning in verse 3, it says this, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now what's interesting in this, this is black and white, yes? The law says if you commit adultery, you're to be put to death, black and white. Jesus is God. What's he going to say? And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without, without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Did Jesus say what she did was okay? excuse her actions in any way, dissolve the law in any way. No, he didn't. But what he said, hey, all of you who think you've got a right to be judges, how about your sin that you're not answering for? Sure, go ahead and follow the law to the nth degree. 
as long as you followed it completely. Let you without sin, you can throw sin and start throwing stones. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the response of God Almighty to this. You still have value. What you've done is wrong. And I have the ability to forgive you. I'm the only one that has the ability to judge you. No one else does. What you're doing is wrong. Don't do it anymore. Go be a new creation. Go walk in the strength that I'll provide you. We have to be so careful that when we open the law and go, black and white, that you reflect that all back right at yourself and say, am I without sin as I go to throw that stone? But it does bring up the question, how is Tamar suddenly not guilty? Because this seems to not fit. I did, it took a while to understand this. When she showed what had happened, she was absolved of all guilt. She's not going to be put to death. She's going to have these children. She's going to live long. What happened here? Well, the perceived issue is immorality or prostitution. Well, for one, she didn't actually prostitute herself. And it took me a while to consider through this. She received no payment for her actions. She only took from Judah what already belonged to her. She was owed the authority, and she was owed the son. That had nothing to do with what she was offering Judah. That was already owed to her. And her marriage covenant with them was that she would stay married within this family. And Near Eastern custom says that if the father-in-law can actually be the one to give her the son. She was not immoral. She did not prostitute herself. She only took what was owed to her already. But then we look at that really interesting verbiage, righteous. She is more righteous than me. I struggled around that for a little bit. It's the word sadaka means righteous. Honesty, justice, justness, community loyalty, entitlement, just cause, or just deeds. It's not the same as holiness. We sometimes use those as synonyms. If you're righteous, you're also holy. But that's not true. Righteous means you are in the right. It's very easy to be righteous without being holy. You're just not wrong. I looked at several verses that have that same word, tzedakah, in it. Genesis 15, and he believed the Lord, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. You are in right standing before me now. Samuel 8:15. so David reigned over all Israel, and David can administer justice and equity to his people. The same word there is equity, not justice. Nehemiah 2:20. then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. 
and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. She was in the right, and Judah was in the wrong. That's what's being said here. Judah had wronged her. She was not in the wrong here. We're not going to punish her for that. It's all about the child that Tamar deserved and her right to be the mother of Judah's heir. It's weird. It's unconventional, even during this time. But she's actually going to be honored through her actions here, through her, her perseverance within her limited choices, her limited frame she had to work with. Within her culture and her context, she remained in the right, when it's so easy to fall into the wrong. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Perez. Perez is a link in the chain. We don't hear a lot about Perez, but he is very important. He becomes Judah's heir. When we read the lineage of Jesus Christ out of the book of Matthew, which I have listed there, it's a very long, we're not going to read the whole thing, but there are some important elements I want to point out here about who is honored. Almost in any lineage, you will never get ladies' names. Ladies, I'm sorry, that's just the way they wrote them down. But in this one, you do. You have four women mentioned, three of them are named. One of them, the first one, is Tamar. She is honored in the lineage of Jesus for what she did here. The second name mentioned is Ruth. Honored in the lineage of Jesus. And the third one is Mary, Jesus' mother. The three women whose actions stepped out of the norm stepped into what would have been really difficult situations, and God honored them for all time for choosing to stand by what was right, choosing the Lord, choosing goodness, unconventional means, and God honored them for it. So what do we learn from this? What happens when life is not black and white. Or we realize for the first time that it's not as black and white as we thought. I had that realization actually with an interaction with my six-year-old daughter. Um, and this for me had to do with clothing. And so I had this notion that anytime someone's walking around with really tight pants, that only has to do with a, a sexualization that they're trying to show off their nice legs or a nice butt or whatever it might be. That's where my mind immediately went. Why? Because that's my struggle. And I put that on anyone else. My six-year-old daughter, which is a non-sexual being at all, never in the farthest points of her mind, prefers clothing that fits as tight as it possibly can on her body. She will even pull it up so it is tight as it can possibly be because she finds it comfortable. It shook my conception of an individual's comfort. And as they go around, what they find comfortable versus what I find comfortable. 
and whether or not it has anything to do with sexualization or not. It was not so black and white for me after that moment. It was really, it was, I had to sit and think for a while. I cannot look at that so simply anymore. It would be nice if I could, but I can't. It was something God revealed to me through that moment. It's not as black and white as I would like it. So how do we deal with the gray? How do we all deal with the gray? Well, first of all, you don't allow the world to influence you on what's gray and what's not, what's black and white and what's not, what's acceptable and what's not. You don't allow the world to do that. You have to seek God within it. You have to do everything you can to be upright with your conduct. And so we have to know what God's Word says. We have to know His wisdom so that we can take it and apply it to a situation that isn't outlined in Scripture. In Proverbs 4, it says, Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go in. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked, like deep darkness, they do not know over what they stumble. We have to know the Word of God. That's why we're going through the Old Testament. We're trying to make it more understandable. We're trying to take the law and not say everyone's going to follow every letter of the law, but we're going to learn the lessons of the law so that we can apply them to our lives. So we can take this difficult walk that Jesus has given us and say, Lord, with your strength, Help me every day that I can walk in your upright paths, Lord, that I can make sure that I don't stumble and I don't cause others to stumble and I don't put my weaknesses on those around me. Lord, help me each and every day. Lord, in this context, how is, do I love you and how do I love my neighbor? How do I walk that out, Lord? In every context, how do I love you, Lord? And how do I love my neighbor? Amen.